0: I had a great uh, trip in, except exactly 24 hours ago, I ran out of gas a mile from the airport. And so uh, I hoofed it across the interstate and bought a gas can. But because I'm always chronically early, I was still an hour ahead of time at the gate. So I really need a handler, I think. Um, two weeks ago, I washed my billfold in the pants pocket of my jeans. It went through the wash cycle and it went through the dryer. So I was out at lunch with mom two days later, mom and I have developed a new hobby. We hit all the flea markets in our area at least once a week. And then we fight over the bill at lunch. So I I was, I grabbed the bill and gave him my card, card declined, you know, doesn't work, whatever it said. Well, there's no balance on the card, I knew that. So the chip was compromised, because I washed my billfold. Mom leans over and she goes, do you need money? (laughs) I said, no, I don't need money, mom. So twice more in the last week, she's asked me, do you need money? I don't need money but i do need a handler but i'm glad to be here um as always um, as i I like to say being here um is is truly being with family Uh, we were talking last night at dinner and the way the world is today especially fellowshipping with believers is is being with family it's more than friends so i'm very very uh, glad to have the opportunity i uh was thinking about the topics for this morning, and uh, I decided to kind of depart from what you know I usually do and i 've been burdened for a long time um, you know by apologetics and, and about how the culture views the Bible and our faith and um because uh, you know with with my friends back home the joke is always that if the more obscure the theology book the more i like it right so i don't read the popular uh, christian titles and i never go to a christian bookstore but uh, anything that's uh, a little more obscure i like and so this is kind of a, a strange topic uh kind of an obscure topic But because of the times we live in, I think it's actually relevant, and I hope that uh, we see that today. So the question is, who wrote Isaiah? You know, this is an obvious question with an even more obvious answer, but it isn't today, because people have, you know, very little knowledge of the Bible, and what knowledge they have, they have been told that the Bible is, you know, myth, myth. It's legend it's in some way not what it appears to be on the surface and you know the Bible is not complicated it really isn't I've I've said this here before but I always think of this uh, this story you know we we try to complicate um, Bible study uh, for many years um, people said you know the Bible is just too hard to understand I don't think it is And uh, I think I used this story here last time, but you know the the great story of uh, Vince Lombardi coming over from the New York Giants to coach the Packers. And the Packers in the beginning were not what they would become. So the first practice, you know, their fundamentals are all over the place and they're just not getting it and he's getting more frustrated. So pretty quickly he just blew a whistle and he called everybody over and he got down on one knee and he picked up a football and he said, gentlemen, this is a football right? That's where they started. So in in many ways, the Bible and Bible study is really, it's just a football. It's not complicated. You don't need a seminary degree. And by the way, you really don't need a seminary degree today in the United States, as we'll see in a minute. You need to be able to read and you, you need a passion for the word. And if you can get scripture to soak into you, you are blessed indeed. Um, I was raised in the church, but I did not start studying the Bible until 25 years ago. I'm, I'm still almost amazed by that. But when you do, there's no substitute. Right? And when you do, and when you make the choice, because that's what it is, it's choosing to believe Scripture is true. People believe that it isn't true, and people believe that it is true, and the choice is up to you. I'm happy and content and satisfied that all of Scripture is true. If the world thinks I'm a fool for that, I don't care. And so this question of who wrote Isaiah when worldviews collide is, I think, very relevant because it goes to the heart of God's sovereignty, right? Now, Isaiah, of course, is the great prophetic book. Some called him the Prince of Prophets. Um, just on a literary level, I personally think, as a, as a reader and writer and lover of books, I think Isaiah was the greatest writer of all time, a little better than Mark Twain. The beauty of the language, if, if for no other reason, read the book for the beauty of the language. But he lived in the 8th century B.C. Okay? Tradition says he was born near Jerusalem. He was a prophet in the time of King Hezekiah not terribly long after the period of of David and Solomon. And it was given to Isaiah the task of recording some of the greatest prophecies in the Bible. He prophesied about things both near and far. Now, The authorship of the book of Isaiah was not questioned until about 1780. And then by a German scholar. You know, the Germans went off the rails in the 19th century on biblical scholarship. You know, it's all myth, it's legend. Had all these anonymous authors, we don't know who they were. Moses couldn't write, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I would also say, always remember that if you read... If you read criticism of the Bible, no matter who it is, I don't care if it's an evolutionist, I don't care if it's a seminary professor, anyone, for example, that tells you the Exodus didn't happen, uh, or that the Genesis origins accounts are really in the realm of myth, they never have real evidence. Keep that in mind. Never. Not Sometimes they never have real evidence. And so relegating scripture to the realm of a myth is one of the great evils of our time. This issue of who wrote Isaiah is very important because in in seminary scholarship in the last 2 centuries it has been alleged that there are multiple authors of Isaiah. Really? You know, we read uh, Isaiah 1 1, and it says it's the vision of Isaiah. It should be good enough for us, but it's not. Why? There's one reason because the enemy is going to attack Scripture any way he can. Now, think about this. When the first Gutenberg Bibles came off the presses, this is the first time that the common man at least had access to the Bible. Well, what what happened right after that? Do you think the enemy is going to let that go by? Just millions of Bibles be pumped out into the culture? No. The Enlightenment happened. The philosophies of men became preeminent. And men began to doubt the authority of Scripture based on no evidence except what was in their wicked hearts. Right? Right? So, this idea that there were multiple anonymous authors of Isaiah, that makes it even better, right? You don't have to prove that either. Because, well, I don't know who wrote it, but somebody, somebody wrote it besides Isaiah. So, some said it was three Isaiahs, four Isaiahs. I've read before that uh, some scholars believe there were 11 of them. You know, they were legion. 11 Isaiahs, if the Isaiah recorded God's very words about the future of the world that's one thing but if he didn't then that's something else altogether because then you can call into question anything else and all of a sudden the sovereignty of God is called into question it may be subtle but that's what it is right did God really say that the oldest lie in the book, literally. I want to read uh, really quick, and in the second service I'm going to rely mostly on my big, heavy, black King James Bible, my uh, Henry Morris Defender Study Bible. And this is what Henry wrote in the intro to the book of Isaiah. The ostensible reason for the unwarranted assertion of a deutero-Isaiah is that the two divisions have two different literary styles, Critics ignore the fact, however, that the two different styles relate to the two different themes of the two sections, not to mention the fact that far more similarities than differences can be found in the two sections. Now listen to this. The real reason, however, for the two Isaiahs' notion is that the second division contains many remarkable prophecies that were later fulfilled. For example, the naming of the Persian emperor Cyrus a century and a half in advance Skeptical theologians are unwilling to believe that God can supernaturally reveal the future to his divinely called and prepared prophets. And so most assume that the last part of Isaiah was written by an unknown writer living among the exiles in Babylon after Cyrus had conquered the city. And that is the essence of what I want to talk about today. Because if they can relegate the prophecies to just history, That's written after the fact then you flip the equation see it's no longer mind-boggling prophecies that only God could fulfill it's just now simply history that man's recorded but the bottom line is you're being fooled and this is what young people in particular being taught today and so very obviously if your worldview isn't biblical, then you get this. Evil spreads. Culture seems to be disintegrating today, which I'm going to talk about in the next service. If the Bible isn't true, then anything's up for grabs. You can create your own reality. And that's what's happening today. John twelve forty eight says, He who rejects me, and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him the word i spoke is what will judge him at the last day that's truth but if isaiah isn't true and the other prophetic books aren't true and the new testament isn't true the gospels aren't and the letters to the churches aren't true then you don't have a judge and there is no last day unless climate change brings it around you know I'm, I'm telling you the truth. I'm being serious. When you don't believe the Bible is true, then you can stand up in public and say that climate change is going to be, bring about the end of the world in 12 years. That's ludicrous and insane, but you can say it. And, and a lot of people will believe you. No. Scripture records that God will judge us at the last day. Now, there is such a thing called emergent eschatology. Most of you have heard about the emergent movement. It's uh, it's really just liberal theology uh, dressed up in new clothes. You know what was uh, what was in the seminaries a hundred years ago is now in the churches. Um, you know, with skinny jeans and goatees and stuff like that. There's a a professor at Fuller Seminary. Remember the word Fuller, <laughs> because believe me, Fuller is lesser. That seminary, seminary that uh, Rick Warren graduated from in 1980, completely off the rails. So Barry Taylor, you know, is is immersed in this kind of stuff now. Um, Emergent eschatology, and and Chris and I have had many discussions about this, it's very different from biblical eschatology. And in in essence, it says that we are responsible for creating a wonderful new world. Right? A wonderful new world. Uh, This is a variation of the the worldview of Teilhard de Chardin, who was a a Catholic priest, who was an evolutionist. And he believed in what is called the omega point. And we're all moving toward an omega point. I had lunch with a pastor one time who explained this to me, and he believed it. He believed that man was becoming spiritually an evolving creature, and somehow we're also physically evolving and we're we're going to a, a, a utopia. I don't know how, and he didn't either, but he wanted to believe it. So emergent eschatology is just that man is capable of solving his own problems and he will. Except that he's not. On Fuller's website, Fuller School of Theology, it says, Fuller School of Theology programs are deeply rooted in scripture no they're not that is false it's false because among other things this view of multiple isaiah is what they teach they also teach that israel oppresses the palestinians there's no link between modern israelis and the ancient israelites that sort of thing their eschatology is completely off the rails Barry Taylor has written, We live in a post-Nietzschean world of faith and spirituality. Nietzsche's declaration that God is dead still holds true. Since interest in all things spiritual does not necessarily translate to a belief in a metaphysical God or the tenets and dogmas of a particular faith. (laughs) Wow. Are you kidding me? What a more evil thing you could hardly think of. He's telling you that the Bible is not true. We can't know the God of the Bible, at least the traditional view. And so we have to strike out on our own. This guy's teaching young people at Fuller. Why? Why is he allowed to teach young people? Why is Tony Jones allowed to teach young people? Tony Jones, who, uh, I don't know if he still teaches at Fuller, but he did, you know, he's the one that several years ago, he just declared one day that uh, original sin isn't, doesn't exist. It, it, it didn't happen. Really, it didn't? How do you know? Well, he doesn't know. But it's what he believes, see? He believes it. And he sounds authoritative. And when you sound authoritative and you have an audience, they're going to believe what you're saying. This is what young people are being taught today. Is it any wonder that the polling data suggests that they're all leaving the church in droves? You know? Uh, Barna Research Group, Lifeway Research, you know, Lifeway, the, the uh, arm of the Southern Baptist Convention, they're all releasing the, these polling numbers that are just abysmal, it's horrific, that young people are, are just en masse leaving the church. Ironically, people like Barna and Lifeway are contributing to the problem. But, you know, we can't say that in public because nobody takes a stand on things like this. When you hear aberrant aberrant theology, when you hear false teaching in the church today in America, you will not hear a rebuttal from any evangelical leader. Just think about that. Why do they allow even apologetic study Bibles for young people to have this garbage in them? The multiple Isaiahs, the Genesis origins are, you know, maybe true, maybe not. There's some true, some not. You know, we have to accommodate modern evolutionary philosophy. Um, Israel is an historical accident, you know, stuff like that. Why do they allow it? Shame on them. Because when the history is written one day of the American church in the 21st century, Ichabod will be written above their doors. So we have this kind of stuff going on. So you, you don't teach young people or, or budding pastors in seminary that Isaiah wrote a sweeping prophetic history and that much of it has come to pass and, and much more is to come to pass, you instead teach them that there were eight or ten or twenty or 105 Isaiahs, anonymous editors, who cobbled together some half-myth, half-legend thing. Where's the power in that? Where is the power and majesty of the sovereign God in that? It doesn't exist. That's why people are depressed. That's why people are leaving the church. There's no real Bible study going on much anymore. Brian Zond, who is a a really big deal among young people, um, moves in that progressive, quote, progressive Christian community. Um, Shane Claiborne, Tony Jones, that that crew, Rachel Held Evans, Jen Hatmaker. He tweeted, the beast in Daniel and Revelation is emblematic of economic military superpowers who see the poor as human resources for their agenda. (laughs) Are you kidding me? That passes for deep thought within evangelicalism today. First of all, half of what he says doesn't even make sense, but it sounds intellectual. And he's removing the great prophetic passages from Daniel and revelation out of the public discourse. See, now it's some Marxist view of liberation theology. It's not anymore about the synergy between the two books and about the theme of the books, which is that the, the creator of everything, the Lord of history, is bringing history to a conclusion when he says and in the manner he wants to do it. That is life changing theology, not this garbage. Bob DeWay wrote a a terrific book called The Emergent Church. I I would recommend that you get it. He said, The Emergent Church movement is an association of individuals linked by one very important key idea, that God is bringing history toward a glorious kingdom of God on earth without future judgment. They loathe dispensationalism more than any other theology because it claims just the opposite that the world is getting ever more sinful and is sliding toward cataclysmic judgment. In Bob quotes Francis Schaeffer who referred to emergent eschatology as a theology of despair. And it is. That's a perfect description. It's not just young people. It's any of us. If Scripture, if the prophetic books are changed from what they are and have always been into some Marxist liberation theology gobbledygook, if it's now history written after the fact instead of supernatural predictive prophecy, then we're all on our own. You're on your own. I'm on my own out in the cold void a theology of despair if somebody seriously believes that we're on a trajectory towards some Omega point they need to explain that a little more carefully I don't see that going on I do see society and the creation itself running down right which is exactly what the Bible tells us it's going to do. As we read um, at the beginning, Isaiah 1.1, the vision of Isaiah the son of Amos concerning Judah and Jerusalem, which he saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. There it is. It's very simple. This was a guy who was tasked by God to bring prophetic utterances to the people, to tell them what was going to happen. Well, guess what? When all the prophets prophesied about the invasion of the Assyrians and later the invasions of the Babylonians, that's exactly what happened. Why should we doubt the rest of it? One of the reasons that nobody gets this anymore is because nobody, who studies the Bible? What, what ministries, what, what megachurches? They're all building their brands. They're not doing any serious Bible study. So nobody knows these things. Genesis three one. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Did he really say that? Did God really say that? Did God say that history is going to run down and men will wax more and more evil, thus making it necessary for the Messiah to come back to rescue the planet? Did he say that or did he not? Isaiah says that that's what's going to happen but not if 11 Isaiahs wrote it after the fact. Then it can be anything you want it to be. This is what people are being taught today. I, I got the title of this from a, a great book by Edward Young. Called, it's called Who Wrote Isaiah. Oswald Alice was another great scholar. These men were defenders of the faith um, two or three generations ago. Alice wrote a book called The Unity of Isaiah. Now, those two men would have not been probably exactly where we are in prophecy community today, but they absolutely believed in predictive prophecy, and they guarded it against the attacks of the critics. And they wrote about evidences that the books were exactly what they claimed to be. Robert uh, Dick Wilson was a contemporary of them. Um, I think the greatest defender of the Bible in the modern era. Uh, And he's been dead 100 years. But he said once, I've never forgotten this quote, he said, attacks upon Isaiah, Daniel, and other books, because they abound in wonderful predictions, will have weight only with those who deny the fundamentals of Christianity. There you go. There you go. Why do the critics not want you to believe that there was one Isaiah? Because then they can remove the sovereignty of God from the equation. And they can make up their own world view. Now, this wasn't just true in, in Wilson's day. This is more true today. You think of the leading ministry figures in this country today, the megachurch ministers, the parachurch ministries, the seminary guys, the most famous evangelical celebrities, most of them, I promise you, would subscribe to most of these theories. They're bringing another gospel. They're not teaching young people the power of predictive prophecy. The power of predictive prophecy is that you're not in charge of your fate, God is. If I were in charge of my own fate, I'd probably still be on the side of the interstate. Out of gas. But God is a problem solver. Par excellence. And he will solve all of your problems. I'm talking to you as individuals He will take the worst circumstance that you're going through now. And if you tell him that you need help, if you do what it says in Matthew 11, 28, all of you who are burdened and weary, come to me and I will give you rest. That's what Jesus Christ, our Lord, promised us. If you ask him If you tell him that you're tired and you need help, he will meet your need. Jesus believed that there was one Isaiah. Right? That's good enough for me. Wilson also said, Isaiah, and this is, he's quoting the critics, Isaiah has a dozen or more authors scattered over four centuries, and all the book's Anything looking like a prediction is ruthlessly cut out and attributed to some unknown redactor of an age at or after the event. I'm just reiterating what I said earlier. That's the reason. That's the reason for the multiple Isaiahs. It's not because they've discovered something amazing, amazing in scholarship. It's because they don't want you to believe that God knows the end from the beginning and has told us, in general, what's going to happen. But he has. I'm not going to get into that today, it's another subject, but ask the critic to just explain the existence of the modern state of Israel and watch them stutter and stammer and give you a stupid answer. One of the incredible prophecies in the book of Isaiah is the one of Cyrus the Great in Isaiah 45 at 44, 45, um, th- this is uh, something only God could do. So Isaiah, he tells Isaiah to write about a man named Cyrus. He names him. This is how great our God is. He doesn't just give the details of what's coming in the future. He names the guy 150 years before Cyrus was born. Cyrus the Great, Cyrus the Persian. And the story is that Cyrus would arise and take control of the region and he would be a ruler who was a little more sympathetic to the Jewish people. And he would allow them to return from their captivity and rebuild Jerusalem well guess what guess what happened in history Cyrus the Great issued a proclamation that the Jews in exile could return home and rebuild their city if you're a critic of the Bible and you don't like the idea of a sovereign God if you don't want God being the rule maker in your life you're going to come up with another another reason for this story well, the reason the 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 explanation they have is that that was written after the time of cyrus see right long after the time of cyrus except they have no evidence for that none zero a, a, a parallel uh, situation this was probably 20 years ago i uh i was going through a united methodist bible study And uh, it was all through the Old Testament. And so I started reading this weird stuff like this, you know. And so uh, one day I'm reading that Daniel, the prophet, wasn't really Daniel the prophet. Right? Because it's the same story as Isaiah. Daniel lived in the 6th century B.C. after the time of Isaiah. But he was also predicting another invasion, the Babylonian invasion, and he wrote about some things that were to come in the fairly near future. I mean, you know, within a few hundred years. Um, and, of course, the return from exile would happen in his lifetime. They would be in Babylon for 70 years, and then God was going to allow them to go back home. So this, this writer this Bible study, which has, I'm sorry to say, infected the, the entire denomination... He starts writing about, and now again, you're talking about Daniel wrote in the 500s BC. This guy claims that the book of Daniel, much of it was written in 167 BC, the time of the Maccabees, 400 years after what is in the book of Daniel was, was going to take place. Well, see, it's the same thing. It's not predictive prophecy anymore because the writer of this study hates predictive prophecy. I can tell you that. He won't tell you that. He won't say it that way, but he does. He doesn't like this Neanderthal primitive view that we can believe in predictive prophecy. So he comes up with the 167 date just out of of the air. There's no evidence. I wrote to him and we exchanged all told four letters. And it took until the third letter. I asked him the same question every time. How do you know Daniel was written in 167 B.C.? His answer finally, in frustration, was that he'd been a scholar for 40 years. (laughs) Really? Well, good for you. But you're wrong. He wanted it to be that way, and so that's what he came up with. And he's poisoning the minds of people who read that study and accept it without question. The fact is that in the book of Isaiah, God calls it long before it happened. He called Cyrus out 150 years before the man was born, before the Persian Empire was born. And he said, This is the guy that's going to do it. And Isaiah wants you to write it down so the people will know when it happens. I think that's astonishing. Thank you, God. Second Timothy 2 Timothy 2.22 says, Flee also youthful lusts, but follow righteousness, faith, charity, peace with them that call on the Lord and out of a pure heart. 2 Timothy 3.15 says, And that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. That should move us to tears. That God loved us that much. But this is not what young people are being taught today. Because they're being taught that scripture is false. That it's myth, legend, history. What a tragedy. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wrap this up with a couple of things. If you're trying to figure out who wrote Isaiah, you look at, at, the, at the literature itself, you look at it from a literary standpoint, you look at the grammar look at all the text 12 times in chapters 1 through 39 the author uses the Hebrew word for the Holy One of God Kedosh Yisrael and he uses it 14 times in chapters 40 through 66 this is largely the division where the critics say another guy took over other guys but yet they're using the same word which would have been used at that time and maybe not so much later So you're telling me that people that wrote it hundreds of years later would use an archaic word? Look at another supernatural element of the book of Isaiah. This, to me, again, astonishing, off the charts. And we know that the division of biblical books today is not exactly what they had in in the times of the prophets, but consider this. In the book of Isaiah today that's in your Bible, the first 39 Chapters deal largely with the wrath and judgment of God. The final 27 chapters deal with His love and mercy. What are the New Testaments? What are the two Testaments about? The Old Testament is 39 books largely about God's wrath and judgment. The New Testament is 27 books about His love and mercy. I mean, do you think this stuff is just accidental? If you do, you're not paying attention. If you do think it's accidental, you don't want to believe it's supernatural. See, there's the problem. The problem is not so much the evidence. The problem is what do you want to believe? And if you want to reject the Bible as God's word, that's your right to do. You can do that. It's fatal, but you can do it. Or you can choose to believe it's real. That evidence I just gave you, Countless examples in history, countless examples in the Bible like that. There's more than enough evidence. There are mountains of evidence to believe that the Bible is exactly what it claims to be. Finally, there's a, another wonderful prophecy in Isaiah 49:22, "Thus saith the Lord God: Behold, I will lift up mine hand to the Gentiles and set up my standard to the people." And they shall bring the sons in their arms, and thy daughter shall be carried upon their shoulders. Hundreds of times in the Old Testament, we are told that the Jewish exiles from the final exile under the Romans would come to an end. And it would take a long time. In our lifetime, that has happened. And if you have no other reason to thank God today for anything, thank Him that you live in that time. You live in the moment that the Jews reentered history. My God. But for 1,900 years, the Gentiles controlled the Middle East. They controlled Palestine. They controlled the ancestral home of the Jewish people. The Jewish people couldn't get back in. The door was locked. So something's going to have to happen. For about 600 years, the Muslim rulers had controlled the region with an iron fist, the Ottoman-Turkish Empire. So then what happens? Well, World War I happens. And the Germans are allied with the Turks. And the British are tasked with taking Palestine. There needed to be an opening for massive Jewish immigration to rebuild the state. So, in October 1917, in a pivotal battle at Beersheba, uh, not far from Gaza, the Turks were dug in. They had German guns, some German troops. So, the British General Allenby was in command of this attack in one of the pivotal battles in modern history. And actually, this was the last large-scale cavalry attack in modern history. Beersheba was the key to opening this route to Jerusalem and to finally conquer all of Palestine and push the Turks out. So Allenby ordered the British 4th and 12th Light Horse Brigades to charge the enemy, who were dug into in trenches. And they started about five miles out, and then two miles from the Turkish lines, they proceeded at a full gallop with bayonets in hand for hand-to-hand combat. They so caught the Turks off guard that they overwhelmed their position. And by nightfall, on October 31, 1917, they took Bresheva and pushed the Turks out. And two months later, Allen B. dismounted from his horse at Jaffa Gate in Jerusalem and walked through the gate to the city, taking it officially for the British. That led, and it took 30 years, but it led to the establishment of the state of Israel. God always does exactly what he says he's going to do. Always. To the letter. He used Gentiles to bring the Jews back. That's just one reason we can be confident that the book of Isaiah was written by one man, the Prince of Prophets, and everything he recorded either has been fulfilled or will be fulfilled, much of it in our lifetime. So, as to the question of who wrote Isaiah? Isaiah. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the marvelous opportunity to gather and worship in this country. Thank you for this place, these people. Thank you that we can read the word in freedom. We ask that it penetrate our hearts and that we have a fire and a passion and zeal for evangelism. In Jesus' name, amen. Massive Jewish immigration to rebuild the state. So in October 1917 in a pivotal battle at Beersheba, uh, not far from Gaza. The Turks were dug in, they had German guns, some German troops. So the British General Allenby was in command of this attack, in one of the pivotal battles in modern history. And actually, this was the last large-scale cavalry attack in modern history. Beersheba was the key to opening this route to Jerusalem and to finally conquer all of Palestine and push the Turks out. So Allenby ordered the British 4th and 12th Light Horse Brigades to charge the enemy, who were dug in into trenches. And they started about five miles out. And then two miles from the Turkish lines, they proceeded at a full gallop with bayonets in hand for hand-to-hand combat. They so caught the Turks off guard that they overwhelmed their position. And by nightfall, on October 31, 1917, they took Brecheva and pushed the Turks out. And two months later, Allenby dismounted from his horse, at Jaffa Gate in Jerusalem and walked through the gate to the city, taking it officially for the British. That led, and it took 30 years, but it led to the establishment of the state of Israel. God always does exactly what he says he's going to do. Always. To the letter. He used Gentiles to bring the Jews back. That's just one reason we can be confident that the book of Isaiah was written by one man, the Prince of Prophets, and everything he recorded either has been fulfilled or will be fulfilled, much of it in our lifetime. So, as to the question of who wrote Isaiah, Isaiah. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the marvelous opportunity to gather and worship in this country. Thank you for this place, these people. Thank you that we can read the word in freedom. We ask that it penetrate our hearts and that we have a fire and a passion and zeal for evangelism. In Jesus' name, amen.